All right. Well, don't we love to give those little nuggets of advice, maybe even excuses for, for what we do or what somebody else does? But what if the information we're receiving or giving isn't true? What if God never said that? We're in week three of a four-part series called God Never Said That, and we're looking at four cultural belief systems that are common in the American church, but God actually never said them. If you missed earlier weeks, you can listen to them online. The first week, we looked at the, the cultural misbelief that says, above all else, no matter what, God's top priority is that you are happy. But God never said that. (laughs) Week two, we looked at what so many people wrongly believe, that God will never give you more than you can handle. But God never said that, and I know it from this past week. (laughs) He gave me way more than I could handle. That's why I needed to rely on him. Next week is the final week, and it's about, about a very popular belief that says, It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. For those of you who know someone that may not be so sure about what they believe, this would be the perfect week to bring them. Perfect. And I promise that you'll also have your faith built in a significant way. Today we're going to look at a very dangerous lie and something that has quite serious consequences. So since it's going to be a little bit heavy... I thought we'd start off a little bit light. Fair enough? Okay. Hmm? Hmm? Okay, all right. (laughs) All right. So here's what I want to do. Now, everybody has to participate. It's no fun without you, okay? So if I could get all of you to look at the person sitting next to you on, say, this side. Look at the person. Look real quick over there. Okay. Now look at the person over here on this side. All right. Maybe a quick look behind you and in front of you. Just kind of be aware who's around you, okay? All right. Okay, what I want you to do now is on the count of three, I want you to point to the one who looks like the biggest sinner. Okay, one, two, three, go! All right, good, good, good. I saw somebody pointing at himself. That's really good. At least he's truthful. I like a sinner like that, you know? I saw a bunch of you pointing up here. Well, that would be true, too. It's kind of awkward to point at someone and say, you're a sinner, isn't it? feels really weird to say that. In culture today, people would argue that the unpardonable cultural sin is to call someone a sinner. In culture today, it's totally unacceptable to say what anybody does is a sin, which leads us to the cultural misbelief I want to talk about today. You'll hear it all the time. Maybe you've even said it. Maybe you believe it. It doesn't matter what you do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. doesn't matter what I do. It's none of your business. doesn't matter what you do as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Well, guess what? God never said that. I want to drive into the reality of what Scripture teaches about our behavior. If you think back to the time when Jesus lived, what do you think was the biggest cultural value? It's totally up for debate, and I could 
I probably couldn't prove this necessarily, but I can make a very strong argument that the biggest cultural value during the time of Jesus was justice. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You do something wrong, you deserve to be whipped or stoned to death. If I ask the same question today, what is the biggest cultural value in America? You can make an argument that the biggest cultural value might be tolerance. Tolerance. What's interesting is that the definition of tolerance has massively changed over the past couple of decades. Tolerance used to mean that all people have equal value. In other words, we should value people. Today, though, tolerance has evolved to mean all ideas and all behaviors have equal value. The definition of tolerance has changed so much in culture today that it's wrong and unacceptable to ever say that behavior is wrong. PC stuff, right? In fact, culturally, we've watered down and sanitized what otherwise would be sinful terms, and, and we've given them more acceptable phrases, phrases that help us feel a little bit better. I mean, I get it. They make me feel better, too. I mean, let's, let's take an example. Let's just do the category of sexual sins. Look at what we call things today. Instead of saying you're looking at pornography, we say it's adult entertainment. I just saw on the news this past week that Charlie Sheen had reported on his financial report that he had spent $1.6 million dollars on what he calls friendly entertainment. It's prostitutes. Friendly entertainment. Sounds so much more acceptable, doesn't it? Uh, we, we don't say that somebody committed adultery in that same category. Uh, that's too harsh. Instead, we say they had an affair. That's, that's a lot easier sounding, isn't it? We've taken what was once wrong and have changed the way that we describe it Because in our culture today, the unpardonable sin is, hey, don't ever tell somebody that's wrong. And besides, what I'm doing is none of your business. I can do whatever I want to do as long as it's not hurting anybody. Now, what we need to recognize is that, first of all, sin is real. It's a real thing. It has dramatic earthly consequences and potentially damning eternal consequences. So today I want to talk about uh, this misbelief system in, in three sections, three sections regarding sin, and, and look at what God really did say about what we do. First of all, it's very common today for people to believe, I'm not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. I'm not bad. You're not bad all over the world. We're not bad people. Maybe I made some mistakes but I'm not really a bad person. Is that true? I mean, where do we come up with the conclusion that we aren't bad people? Because John says, if we claim to be without sin, in other words, if we say we're not bad people, then we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
I mean, what do we do? Let's say that word together. We what? Deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, if we compare ourselves to other people, yeah, we may be tempted to say, hey, I'm not really that bad because we can always find someone worse. You just found somebody worse than you sitting next to you. (laughs) Okay? We can always find that. But other people are not the standard to which we are compared. God never says, oh, you're better than that person at least, or you're worse than that person. He never says that. When we compare ourselves, though, to a holy, perfect God, we are horrible, filthy sinners. Let's just admit it. We're all bad people. Here's an illustration um, from, a, I've used this before. There's this guy named Ray Comfort. He's a preacher, evangelist guy. Uh, he does these interviews on the street and he has these questions. And I'm, I'm going to just ask you these questions. How many have ever told a lie? How many of you, any kind of lie? How many of you have told a lie? Okay, very good. Now you can look to the person next to you and go, liar, liar, pants on fire. Okay. How many of you now, second question, have ever stolen something? Anything, a piece of bubble gum, something from your sibling? Okay. All right, the ones that didn't raise your hands, maybe we need to go back to question number one. Okay. (laughs) Now I'm going to modify the third question a little bit so nobody gets in trouble with their spouse. Before you were married, before you were married, how many of you have ever looked lustfully at someone? Come on, okay? All right, let's unpack this. If you've told a lie, somebody help me, what are you? Well, yeah, a liar. Yeah. Let's don't be so general, okay? (laughs) All right, so if you lied, if you told a lie, you're a liar. Uh, If you've stolen something, what are you called? A thief, yes. If you have... uh, kind of looked lustfully on somebody. Remember now, Jesus said you commit adultery in your heart. You commit adultery in your heart if you look at someone lustfully. So what are you if you looked at someone lustfully? You're an adulterer, right? Adulterer. Okay, so what does that all mean? It means that you are a lying, thieving adulterer. Welcome to Cornerstone, where we love making you feel better about yourself. (laughs) Okay, so we're not good people. We're sinful at our core. In fact, Scripture teaches us that there is no one righteous, not even one. You've heard me up here. I've admitted all kinds of bad behavior. Right up here in the pulpit. (gasps) I admit it. Some of you say, I can't believe you do bad stuff too. You're like a regular dude. Yeah, of course I am. Don't put me up on a pedestal. I sin, we all sin. There's no one righteous, not even one. So I'm not a bad person? That simply isn't true. We're all sinful in the eyes of God. The second piece of this cultural misbelief, all sin is the same. All sin is the same. 
Many people probably believe this. I have believed this. Uh, People will say, who are you to judge me? What I'm doing is no worse than what you're doing. All sin is the same. But God never really said that. Now, please hear me clearly on this one. The Bible doesn't teach that all sin is the same. Now, don't miss this one. All unforgiven sin does lead to eternal death, but not all sin is the same. Paul said this, the payment for sin is death, okay? Any type of sin, little, big, whatever, it's all, and when it's unforgiven sin, it all leads to death. It's all the same in that respect. The good news is, but the gift that God freely gives is everlasting life found in Jesus Christ our Lord, the sinless one. All unforgiven sin does lead to eternal death. But other than eternal life, all sin is not the same. Because, watch this, the consequences are different. They're different. For example, I was driving through that stupid intersection down there by the American Legion, you know, where 274 goes into 1115. I've lived here over three years, and I still get confused there. (laughs) It's unbelievable. I was supposed to stay put, okay, while the other car coming over here was going to turn right. But I kept going a little bit, so he slammed on brakes, I slammed on brakes. And uh, being the man of God that I am, I just gave him that universal sign for my bad. You you know, you, you bow the head, my bad, you know, my bad, okay? I shouldn't have done that, my bad. Unfortunately, he gave me the universal sign for your bad, Okay, you know what I'm talking about. I cannot lie. When he did that to me, turned into town, I kind of pressed on the gas. I got real close right behind him. And then I noticed the cornerstone bumper sticker. And I realized one of you guys just flipped me off. Well, wouldn't you know it, we were both headed to the post office. (laughs) Being the loving pastor that I am, I didn't want him to continue in his sin, so I pulled in the parking space right next to him. He looked over at me and turned white as a ghost. (laughs) I said, God is good. And he said, amen, brother. (laughs) All right. I totally made that up. I totally made that up. But let's say... Let's say if the story were true, and instead of the sin of shooting me with, shooting me with the finger, he shot me with a gun. That's a different type of sin, isn't it? Both will keep you out of heaven if they are not forgiven, but both are not equal in terms of consequences. All unforgiven sin separates us from God, but all sins are not the same. You see, how we live influences at least three things. One thing, how we live, influences consequences on earth. If, if you're sinful here on earth, we all know the consequences are not the same. If, if you're one of our youth leaders here and you commit the sin of gluttony, you might still be able to be a youth leader here. If you smoke dope with a teenager, you cannot be one of the youth leaders here. 
You see what I mean? I don't know what they do in Colorado, but they got to figure that one out. All right? There are different earthly consequences to our behavior. Another thing, how we live influences rewards in heaven. God rewards certain behavior in heaven for how we live and what we do here on the earth. Uh, And the third thing, how we live influences punishment in hell. To some degree or another, and obviously we don't know all the details, our behavior, our earthly influences determine what happens in hell to some extent. Let me show you a couple of different examples. And in one passage of scripture, it says, the Pharisees devour widows' houses for a show, make lengthy prayers, and these men will be punished most severely. In other words, taking advantage of those whom the church is called to serve and protect and love. The Pharisees take widows' houses, Jesus was saying. Take away their houses. And then for a show, they make these big lengthy prayers. Apparently, God hates that type of hypocrisy. So Jesus says these men will be punished. How? Everybody help me out. How will they be punished? Most severely. This implies there might be a less severe punishment for some actions and a more severe punishment for others. Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, when he was kind of turned over to the authorities, he said, therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of what? A greater sin, implying there are lesser and greater sins. Paul says, run from sexual sin. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Now, most other sins, Paul says, fight, resist, but not this one. This one, he says, just run. Run, Forrest, run. Get out of there. Because this one impacts you in a deep, personal way. So, doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't hurt anyone. God never said that. How we live, what we do, it matters on earth and it matters in eternity. It can at least hurt us or at least hurt God. So misconception number one, I'm not a bad person. Yes, you are. I'm a bad person. We all are. We're sinful when we are compared to a holy God. Misconception number two, all sin is the same. All unforgiven sin does separate us from God, but there are certain sins on earth that will have a bigger impact on our lives. The third big cultural piece of this, so many people believe it, and quite honestly, a church this size, I'm sure many of you believe it right now. Since I've already done it, I might as well keep on doing it. Since I've already done it, why not? The list goes on and on. The teenager or the young adult says, well, I'm not a virgin anymore. I might as well keep doing it. I've done some drugs, so I might as well keep on doing it. I stole something before and didn't get caught. Why not do it again? Whatever it is, I've already done it. So I might as well keep on doing it. That problem was just as real a couple thousand years ago as it is today. Because the Apostle Paul asked the same question to the Christians in Rome. 
says, well, then should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? In other words, hey, if God's going to forgive me anyway, why not? Why not do it? Why should I stop? What does Paul say there? Of course not. Of course not. You're smarter than that. You're better than that. He says, since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? All right, we're not talking about a mistake. We're not talking about slipping, falling. We're talking about deliberate, continuing sin. Since Jesus died for us and our sin nature should no longer have power over us, why would we continue to go back into what hurts the heart of God and hurts us and potentially hurts people around us. I hear this from Christians. I even hear it sometimes at Cornerstone. I just want to go a little deeper. Can we just get a little bit deeper in our Bible study? I'm I'm all for deep. I'm okay with that. But listen, spiritual maturity is not about how much we know about how much we obey. If you love Jesus, he says this, you will obey him. If you love him, you will obey him. Spiritual maturity isn't just about having more knowledge. It's about having more fruit. Spiritual maturity isn't just learning more of the original language or the deeper theology. Spiritual maturity is about letting the Holy Spirit take over and live through you. Spiritual maturity is about being transformed into the image, the very image of Jesus Christ. The problem is, now this one may be a little hard to swallow, the problem is most, most Christians in our culture are educated way beyond their level of obedience. That makes sense? Most of us don't need to know more. We just need to apply what we already know. It's sad today how many, how many of us call ourselves followers of Jesus And then we consistently walk right back into the same sins over and over. And then we rationalize it and we justify it. And we say, it's not that big of a deal. And who are you to judge me anyway? That's a little side note there. You know, God never said to not judge each other either. He said to not judge those in the world. He said to not be critical of each other. But... Judging right from wrong? What are we talking about here today? Our behavior. Okay? Doesn't mean we call somebody bad just because of their character, but we've got to we gotta be a little more comfortable with this. I hope you would come tell me, David. You know, when you were throwing around those four letter words in your sermon the other day, you better stop that. <laughs> I haven't done that yet, have I? <laughs> okay. Whew. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Of course not. Here's what's so scary. And that's when we continue in it and we don't even realize it. Now, we do get a little bit of 
slack cut when we don't realize it. God's a merciful God. But consider this. The most miserable people on earth are not non-Christians. The most miserable people on earth are Christians who continue to live in sin and just constantly deal with that tension and guilt. That's miserable people. I know, I've tried it. It's miserable. Christians who know the freedom that are available to them, who know God's standard, yet intentionally disobey God, those are miserable people. If you're not aware of sin, here's the deal on that one. A little mercy is given to you if you're not aware, but it's really a sign of spiritual immaturity because the closer you get to Jesus, the more he reveals the impurity in your life. The closer I get to him, the more I realize how much is wrong with me. I'm always at a stage of confessing sin. Not because I need to do it so he'll love me. He already loves me. I do it because I love him. Because I don't want to do things to disappoint him or disappoint other people. And yet because of my bent towards sin, I continue to struggle. But guess what? God's grace is more powerful. His spirit dwelling in me is the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Therefore, what is in me is more powerful than my pull towards sin. Amen? What's in you is more powerful than your pull towards sin. The closer you get to Jesus, the closer you get to the light. And the light exposes what's wrong. It it brings things out of the darkness. Now, I don't want you to go around feeling guilty because of this. but, But here's what you need to see. Sin is progressive. It keeps moving forward. Sin grows best in the dark. But when you bring it in the light, that's when it's exposed. And the light of Jesus doesn't just expose it. The light of Jesus sets you free. Can talk to him about it. Can ask for forgiveness. You cheat one time, you may cheat again. You look at pornography and you get stuck in it. You want more. It's progressive. You lie a little bit and suddenly you start to lie more. Keep it in the dark. You gossip and criticize, and and it even starts to feel good. You're down that slippery slope. Sin is progressive. It'll take you further than you want to go. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. We say, well, it's not that big of a deal. The moment we say that, say that it's not that big of a deal, that's when it is. That's when it is. How is it costing you? If you're a follower of Jesus and you continue to live in sin, you will lose intimacy with God because sin and the holiness of God don't stay together. They repel each other. Suddenly you won't be as sensitive to his voice as you once were. And when your heart starts to harden, that's when the distance between sinning and repenting grows. You're going to mess up. We're all going to mess up. But when you are maturing spiritually, 
When you're getting better spiritually, there's a shorter distance between, oops, I sinned, and I need to ask God for forgiveness. That's when you know you're maturing, when those two things are coming together. That's when you're, uh, the distance between you and the sensitivity you have toward God is getting better. You're acquiring the mind of Christ then. You're starting to look and live like Jesus. The bad news is that sin will mess you up, okay? Have I harped on that enough? But the good news is, watch this, the good news, Jesus is a friend of sinners. <laughs> Point to the person next to you now. Okay? He's a friend of sinners. In fact, you know what? I think we deserve, he deserves an ovation for that. An ovation. He's our friend. He's our friend. Doesn't matter that we're sinners. He's our friend. Now remember our funny little exercise to point at the biggest sinner next to you? I'm guessing those of you who were clapping are probably the biggest sinners. That's because you know how good his grace is. And you just have to thank him. You know how rot gut you are. (laughs) And you just have to thank him for being your friend. That's good news. See, when you recognize yourself as a sinner, that's when you see your need for a savior. And it finally hits you that Jesus came and died and rose from the dead just for you. Just for you. That's the best news ever. We run to Jesus, the friend of sinners, who came to set us free. So when culture says, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't hurt anyone, please understand that you're listening to a lie from the pit of hell. Sin is the greatest enemy to intimacy with God. That's why you and I are here today. Because we recognize we're all sinners. And we run to Jesus, the friend of sinners, the forgiver of sinners, the savior of sinners. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get up here on the stage. Ban, y'all come on up. Let me get up there first and I'll pray from there. And we're going to sing one more song together. All right, pray with me. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us. Those who maybe for months or years have been trapped, I thank you that you're faithful and you always give a way out. Father, I thank you for, your, for, for helping us to, to get closer to Jesus today. And I thank you that you're revealing the impurities in our life. By your power, you're transforming us into the image of your Son. Those of you who are followers of Jesus, is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Is he showing you some area of your life to confess before God so you could better glorify him? Not to win his love, but so you can reflect his love. Do you want to be forgiven, healed, and set free? And then there are those of you who, for the first time today, realize you have a need for a Savior.
The reality has finally sunk in. I'm not a good person. None of us are. Until you see yourself as a sinner, you won't know that you have a need for a Savior. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. None of us will. That's why the birth, life, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus is good news. It's great news. Because God came to us through Jesus, a friend of sinners. In that great sacrifice, he became sin for us so that anyone who calls on his name would be saved. It's not about religion. It's not about working it out for yourself. It's all about his love and his grace. What do you do? You you turn to Jesus and you say, I trust you. You say, today by faith, I surrender my life to you. I recognize I need a Savior. And Jesus, I ask you to forgive me and save me and make me new. And when you do that, you are immediately welcomed into God's family. And you can now live your life in freedom for Jesus Christ. And it's in that name we pray. And we're getting ready to sing this, so say this real loud. All the people say Amen. Amen.